It's funny, the, the term coming out is something I tend to avoid, actually, because I didn't necessarily come out. I just, I had always been, this is, you know, I was born this way and this is how I had been. And, and, and actually, the, the only challenge was is just trying to, when do I let my mum know? <laughs> hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of How I Crossed It, the podcast that shines a light on talent in the community. I'm your host, Tunde, and we are delighted to have on the podcast this week, Maggie Alfonsi, one of the leading figures in the England 2014 World Cup winning rugby team. In fact, when you think of women's rugby in the UK, Maggie is probably the first person people think of. This has helped her to become the first former female player ever to be part of a TV broadcast team for a men's rugby World Cup. And you can currently catch her on your TV screens as she is part of the ITV coverage of the Men's Rugby World Cup at the moment. On this episode, you'll hear how she overcame being born with a disability to become a player in multiple World Cups for the English national team, how she coped with retirement from professional sports and the challenges she's had to face with people accepting her sexuality. You'll definitely want to hear this one. This show has been brought to you in partnership with UK Black Business Week. With events delivered by industry leaders, the UK Black Business Week promises to equip black professionals and entrepreneurs with business insights, new skills and knowledge to navigate the world of work. On Thursday, the 5th of October, in particular, they have a panel discussion called Rising Beyond the Game, Resilience and Reinvention in Sports, presented by TalkSport. Sports presenter Ade Oladipo will be hosting a panel discussion featuring ex-West Ham footballer Anton Ferdinand, ex-footballer Leanne Sanderson and broadcaster Kweku Afari. And then afterwards, Ade will be having an intimate chat with former world heavyweight champion Frank Bruno. It's a great lineup and offers a unique opportunity to hear the inspiring stories of some great names in black British sport. Now, we have a limited amount of free tickets. So for more information, please go to www.ukblackbusinessweek.com and put in Crushed It 2023 in the promo box. So that's Crushed It, all capital letters, 2023, and put that in the promo box to get you your free ticket. I'll include that in the show notes below and hope to see you there. Okay, welcome to the show. Maggie Alfonsi. How, how are you today, Maggie? I'm very well, actually. Really good. Um, thanks for having me on board. Uh, I'm looking forward to being able to speak to you. I mean, it's such a pleasure to have you on the, on the podcast. I know you have a book out at the moment, and we will reference that in a bit more detail towards the end of the podcast. But I guess what I wanted to ask you straight off the bat is how difficult was it or how challenging was it to, to write a book? Because I know people don't really realize that there are there's a whole process that go in, goes into writing a book, isn't it? Lo- loads of rewriting and editing. So how, how challenging did you find it? It was very challenging. I must confess that I didn't write it in the sense that I had a ghostwriter, Gavin Mears from the, uh, from the Telegraph, actually. He's a chief rugby writer for, for rugby. Um, and basically he helped me out. <laughs> he, he put my words into beautiful, into beautiful style that people really, really like. But it was still challenging because we have to, we had to work together. I had to open up about my story, my journey, like you just touched on. We have to edit. We have to look at how we want to arrange it. We have to have these interviews. So the whole process lasted almost what felt like two years. It's not been, not been an easy one at all. And again, you have to learn to open up to the person you're speaking to because we develop a relationship that has to come out across in the, in the book really well that people feel like they're part of your journey. So um, it wasn't easy, but it was a really positive experience, very cathartic in the sense that, you know, you feel like you're, you're, you're getting it off your chest, if anything. Yeah. But um, I'm so pleased that we have done it, that I've done it and that it's out there now. And I mean, to be fair, everyone could write a book. Everyone's got a story to tell. It's just, uh, it's just finding the time and the right people and the right support network to do it. Yes, indeed. I mean, as I say, we will reference the book at the end. 
I know we've got limited time and there are so many questions that we could ask you because you've obviously had a, an illustrious career. But let's go back right to the beginning. Obviously, you, were, you grew up in London. I understand in Lewisham. How were the first few years for you with growing up as a kid in Lewisham? Yeah, so I was actually born in Lewisham. So I was born in South London and then my mother moved us to North London. So I actually grew up in, in Edmonton, in Enfield. So, you know, I had a really interesting upbringing in the sense that I grew up council state, single parent family. Sadly, quite a lot of the stereotypes that you would probably associate with someone like myself in the sense that I had to really overcome adversity, challenges to be successful. It was a really hard time because the people that I sort of grew up around in an environment like this council state, not, you know, not everyone had aspirations. Some were successful, some weren't. And you just have to kind of like, it's a melting pot of different types of people. So you just have to navigate your own way through it. And, you know, I wasn't the most easy, easiest of children to look after. I used to get into a lot of fights and bless my mother, you know, single parent family really did incredibly well to, to support me and manage me. And I, and I got through that challenging time when I was a child. I was, a, I was a good kid. I just didn't always like, necessarily engage with school content or sometimes listen to my elders um but but thankfully I got through it and 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 yeah for me at the time I found sport but everyone finds their thing don't they really but um it was a difficult time but at the same time a really positive time so I do look back at my childhood with fond memories and I'm pleased that I found you know the right path for me and has enabled me to be successful and like myself, you have a, a Nigerian uh, background. I think your your mum was from Nigeria. Have you had an opportunity to visit Nigeria and sort of uh, connect in that way or not? Not really. I haven't actually. So my mother's from Nigeria. Family is Nigerian. I, I think it's maybe because sadly my mother left Nigeria in, in not the most positive of ways, really. So I guess as a result of that, I probably haven't found myself over going over there yet. I know one day I will. I've got two two children, which I'd love them to be able to understand my roots. But I guess at the moment I haven't I haven't taken that step. And I know one day it will happen. I've been to South Africa. I've been to Kenya. So next on my list has got to be Nigeria, really. It's, and it's always interesting because I've got lots of friends who are from Nigeria or have a Nigerian background. And they're always saying, why have you not gone out there? You need to go. So it, it's definitely a focus that I want to do in the future. Uh, it's just challenging because I guess my mother's background and her experiences has sort of made me think I need to think about if I do that but um, I'm hoping that you give me lots of uh, lots of advice and ideas about where to go to when I go there next <laughs> yeah well I'm actually going in a couple of weeks so um, yeah oh, brilliant. I'll, I'll, I'll remember that I'll jot some things down and uh, send you an email ping you an email please do <laughs> <laughs> um, now I, I read elsewhere that um, you've even referenced it yourself you know it's quite challenging growing up you moved to Edmonton it was quite challenging your mum had two jobs I think working two jobs. And that, that, that's quite a recurring theme, actually, with a lot of the guests that we have on the show. You know, the fact that, you know, growing up as a, as a kid, things are often not as sort of sweet as, as they are for other people in society. But you've also documented elsewhere and obviously in your book, the fact that you were in and out of hospital. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, when I was born, I was born with a physical disability called clubfoot. So um, some might know about it. It's been referred, the medical term for it is telepiesis. It's where basically one or both of your feet are turned all the way in. So for me, when I was born, my right foot was completely turned all the way in. And the general procedure for someone who has that lower limb condition is you generally have to have an operation fairly early on, soon after you've been born. So you can imagine it's quite scary for any parent to think that their child might have to undergo an operation that, you know, could be fairly risky and could cost them their life. So yeah, I guess when I look at my, my initial start to life, my mum went through quite a lot and having to get me to go through and have an operation on my right foot and then spent my early part of my childhood just going through the process of straightening my foot, really. Thankfully, all went okay. You know, I was able to, I was able to have a very good childhood. And who would have thought? I mean, I would have gone on to have a successful career as, a, as an athlete and then win some good accolades. But um, yeah, it was it was a challenging start. And I guess when I was young, I never really appreciated it. But you know, I know it was hard for my mum at the time having to support a child going through those challenges and, and ensuring that I wasn't necessarily being affected in any way. And it's interesting, you know, at school, I used to always be quite anxious about my foot. Uh, I didn't even know, I didn't really know that I had club foot when I was young, actually, or had had experience of 
club foot. But I knew that I had a limp and that my foot slightly turned in a little bit anyway. So I was always conscious about doing playing in sports where I had to run and people had to see me for a long period of time because they could see that I was limping. And so I, was just, I, I, I sort of shied away from sports like that. So I really invested myself into football, but I was a goalkeeper usually. If I did hockey, again, goalkeeper, netball, I was goal defence. So, you know, I was not necessarily having to do too much in the sense of travelling too far. It was just more about defending. So little things like that really kind of played in my mind. And then when I got to play for England, as I got older, it was all about, right, how do we manage your foot and how do we ensure that your muscles and your, you know, your joints are, are supporting the biomechanics of your body so you don't get any injuries? Because I used to have a lot of injuries, back problems, hamstrings, knee problems. But thankfully, you know, I managed it and got through it. And, and now, you know, I do a lot of charity work to help people who have club foot or talapesis or lower limb conditions because you can you can have a future and you can be successful in in whatever you choose to commit yourself to yeah i mean i can tell that you've got a background in sports science i mean i know that's what you studied at at university i mean just some of the some of the words that you're using <laughs> quite quite technical <laughs> terms but i mean that's just fascinating the fact that you're in and out of hospital and eventually you know year by year month by month you were able to get your your mobility back, your flexibility back, and obviously start playing sports. Um, I mean, during primary school and maybe, you know, going into secondary school, what kind of sports did initially you favour? I mean, obviously you ended up playing rugby, but what were the what were the first sports that kind of got your eye, do you think? Yeah, so at primary school, I think everyone gets into it. It was rounders. I <laughs> loved rounders. So, yes. You know, hitting a ball with a bat of one hand and then making sure you <laughs> you don't throw it. Um, so it was like I, I so I really enjoyed rounders. Um, and again, I was conscious of my running because you obviously got to run around the the, the sort of circumference of of the. Um, pitches and so on but actually I really enjoyed that I, I, I again played a little bit of football at that time and netball was also probably quite strong especially you know when you're at that time at school girls incredibly are um, pushed to play netball so I did a lot of netball and I really enjoyed it at primary school Secondary school became different because you got such variety of sports just opened up to you I didn't play rugby because rugby wasn't available for girls I still look back now and I think oh it's a shame there's there's certain sports not on the curriculum that that girls are are pushed towards which is why I do encourage and always champion greater variety at at secondary schools but for me at school I am again football was the thing that I did girls didn't do football in the curriculum but what we did do was you know you just at playtime everyone played football Um, and I was one of the few girls who would play with the boys and the boys loved me in goal because I was really good at it. So um, basically did football when I was young, did netball. But again, I didn't didn't know of rugby, wasn't aware of rugby. And it was only sort of PE teachers that encouraged me to take up that sport. But um, yeah, I was, I was very good at, I like to think that I was pretty good at, at football. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I mean, the school that I went to in Camden, I mean, rugby just wasn't on the schedule for anybody, boys or girls, because... We didn't have any field, playing field. We just had a concrete, you know, playground, I guess. And that was it. So, you know, it was just football, basketball. We had a bit like an indoor sports hall. But yeah, rugby just wasn't on the list at all. So I guess for a lot of inner city schools, you know, they, they must be missing out on quite a lot of potential talent because they just don't have the, the facilities. You're absolutely right. I think that's what, when we talk about rugby in particular, that one of the barriers to kids getting into sport, especially from various different backgrounds, is the entry point. Most kids, especially in inner cities, don't have the field facilities, so might not be introduced to rugby at school. Um, and then the only option they have been introduced to sport is if a rugby club sends coaches into the school that might encourage them to go to their local rugby club. So that's always really hard. If I think about my situation, again, I'm my school's in, in North London, um, you know, lots of properties, lots of buildings around. We had a field, so we did have rugby in the curriculum, but it was only for boys. And I, I can tell you now, most of those boys did not want to oh, play rugby. Yeah. Like It was like cross-country for us back then. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was one of the sports they had no interest whatsoever. So just by chance, though, which I still look back and think that we were quite lucky to have, we had a lot of PE teachers, men and women, who played rugby. So that they're the ones who brought that enthusiasm to us and saw it as a sport where you could really get some benefits benefits from but it, like I said 
that's where the, the challenges are. How do we ensure that the sport is open to all and that access or entry point is not a barrier? Indeed. And again, for a lot of our guests on the show, they all seem to have this kind of sliding doors moments. What's, you know, a point in their life where things have co- could have gone in a completely different direction. And I think with you, it seems to be the teacher that you had who gave you a particular suggestion. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, um, the teacher was a lady called Lisa Burgess. Uh, so she was my, my physical education teacher. And, um, I said, you know, at school, like I touched on, I, I was a challenging child. I wasn't a bad child. I wasn't not smart. I just didn't engage with school content. And, um, so I used to reach a point where I almost reached a point where I almost got excluded from school. And uh, still to this day, I, I remember it. She doesn't remember it too much. But um, I remember walking down the corridor at school and bumping into her. And uh, she had sort of like black eyes and bruises and, and a bit of bloodshot eyes. And I was like, Miss, what do you do? And uh, she was like, oh, yeah, I play rugby. I play rugby for Saracens, which was a club in North London. And I play rugby for, for Wales. I'm the captain of the Welsh women's rugby side. And um, I was just in absolute awe because... One, you, you don't think your teachers have a life outside of school. And uh, two, for a woman to play a sport which is really perceived to be male-orientated, I was just blown away. And um, she was like, Maggie, do you know what? I think you should try this sport out. And again, we didn't really have rugby at school for girls. So she was like, go to a local rugby club. And thankfully, my local rugby club was her rug- local rugby club, which was Saracens in Cockfosters in North London. So I, j- I knew that I could get there. <laughs> I knew there was a, I could get a W6 bus from Edmonton Green uh, and, w- and walk from the walk from the bus station to the rugby club. And um, yeah, I got there and I basically never looked back. It was um, the po- most positive experience of my whole entire time. Cockfosters is at the end of the Piccadilly line as well, isn't it? Is that, is that, that's yeah, correct. that's right. That's correct. So, so I mean, so I, I mean, most of the time I got the bus because it was fairly easy. W6 you can pick up from anywhere, well, from Edmonton Green. But um, the great thing was there was, a, there was a transport, again, this is why I say with rugby, you know, it's making sure your rugby club's in a location that it's easy to get to. And thankfully for me, I could get there via a W6 bus or the, or the uh, yeah, overhead underground train link on the uh, Piccadilly line. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what I found really fascinating during this part of your life is the fact that as a 14, 15 year old, I think you you said on on another interview that you didn't necessarily have a lot of confidence in your own body back then. And rugby, in a way, allowed you to gain that confidence. Could you talk a little bit about that and what what you meant by that sort of gaining confidence by, by playing rugby? Yeah, so I guess when I was at school, um, even though I was quite a tough girl, I had big arms, I had big legs. And I guess at school, sadly, sometimes kids will bully you for that, especially when you don't look like a typical petite girl that, that most girls were back then so so did you get did you get some bullying then at back then yeah I got some yeah I mean right. I still to this day I, I still remember a couple of incidents um where you know people would make fun at me because I had big big legs you know especially when you're young at that time we all went swimming <laughs> um you know and for any child it's the most I think it's the most anxious time because you're having to wear clothes that obviously shows more of your body so yeah people would and for that sadly some kids would make fun out of mine in fact I had big legs and my arms were really big so as in like quite strong so I guess what was what I loved is that I went to a sport where they would like wow you've got big arms and you have big legs I mean that makes you a perfect rugby player so I just felt automatically wanted and welcomed and it was the best it was the best thing for me because I felt like the best thing about rugby what I love anyway is that there everyone is a different size different shape and you know that there's a position or a place for you and that's what sort of is the selling point for me with regards to that sport, I had big arms and big legs. Great. You will play this position. Um, or, you know, you're short, you play this position or you're tall, you play this position, you know, there's something for you. And that's what I think what sold it for me. And I was able to thrive. And now as I'm older, I still have big arms and big legs, but actually I try and tell people and I tell myself, you know, that's my unique strength. That's my superhero power. And actually that's a great thing. Don't be bothered by it and don't let people who I guess sadly hate you for your strengths pull you down so um yeah now I have a great appreciation of my body and and what it can do which is nice and obviously that that strength kind of led you to becoming 
named uh, Maggie the Machine during your professional career, which we will go into. But I was just wondering, how did you make the journey from, you know, that first training session at Saracens to getting your first cap for England? How was that journey? Yeah, that journey was an interesting one. So officially I picked up a rugby ball at the age of 13 years old, which is quite late in any child's development with rugby. Most kids nowadays start when they're like minis. So sometimes six years old, sometimes younger than that, really. So I picked up at the age of 13. And um, for me, I, I just, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I thought it was like netball, but the difference is netball, you throw forward. Rugby, you, you're still confusing to this day. You pass backwards and you move forward. So I, I for me, the initial start was a bit of a challenging one, but then I, I loved it. I, I grew into it. I just didn't want to look back. And then through the process of getting to play for England, there's a journey. Like any sport, you, you have to kind of get into your, some people in rugby get into county level, but it wasn't county for me. I had to go to a regional level, got into that, that set up and then had to go for trials for England. And so it was a long journey, really. So my the, the time between getting picking up a ball and then finally getting my England call up took about I'd say five to six years it was a bit of a journey some people have longer journey some people have a shorter journey but yeah mine took about five six years I got the phone call at the age of 19 years old so that was a that was a big step really 2003 when I got that phone call and at that time the England men had just won their rugby world cup oh yeah you know and I was just getting my first England jersey so you can imagine the the hype about rugby at the time in our in our country was quite special, really. And to be able to think that oh, I'm, I finally got my England jersey, I knew the journey was going to be long because getting your England jersey, if I'm honest, is probably the easy one, the easy bit. It's um, holding on to that jersey, which is the hardest bit. But it was a challenging journey to get to that point. When I got it, I was just it was so so grateful, not just because of what I had achieved, because of it was more because of all the things and the people that supported me on the on the way to get to that point. And do you remember how many times you'd played for Saracens at that point before you got your first England cap? I can't, you know, um, but I know I had played for Saracens a very long time. So I guess I was born in Lewisham, but uh, Saracens made me. Um, (laughs) I went through, uh, you know, I had some ups and downs. The hardest thing I found when I played at Saracens, there was a lot of England players based there who were a lot older than me, had a lot more experience. But I learned from them. I was... I basically was on, I like to say, an MBA on how to play rugby and um, learning from all of those people around me really definitely upskilled me and challenged me. I was always at training trying to get better because I was surrounded by fantastic athletes and knowledgeable people. So, yeah, I can't remember how many times I played for Saracens, but it would have been a a few good appearances for them before I actually got my England call-up. Yeah, as well, yeah. Now, I know, I know things have changed since you've retired. You know, the fact that um, a lot of women now get professional contracts in the game. But back then in, t- in early 2000s, I don't know if there were any professional contracts then. So how did you make ends meet? You know, you, obviously you're playing for England, you're playing for Saracens. I don't know what the, what the pay packet was there, what the expenses were like, but how, how did you make ends meet? So, yeah, basically, there wouldn't have been any professional athletes at the time. What there would have been is there, a lot of athletes were on national lottery funding, so they would have had enough money to be able to train, have rest days um, if they are working. So that would have been what they would have got, but we would not have been professional con- would have not been professional at all at that time. And for many of us, we all had one or two jobs, to be honest. And, and also you choose jobs that will enable you to train. So you might not have gone down the career path that you had hoped you had, but you wanted to make sure that you played rugby for England. That was your one thing at that time. So I, I worked, you know, my initial job, I worked for the Rugby Football Union. So the governing body that basically managed rugby in England. So I worked there as a community club coach and then progressed and was promoted to become a divisional talent development officer and that was it's the, 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 I have to say that the challenge I had then is balancing work and rugby and the hardest bit was working for the same organization that manages your rugby as an England player as well as managing your job so the lines became very blurred and, and I, so I found that very very hard and also it's hard when you talk about playing rugby it's a job in itself so probably similar to my mother I had two jobs I effectively was working in a job that paid me lots of money or paid me money I would say lots but paid me money Um, and then I worked in another job which was my rugby which didn't really give me any money but um, I had to still commit equally both my time and commitment if I wanted to progress further and 
I did that, I guess, all the way through to the point where I actually retired. I was, you know, towards the end of my retirement, I was effectively professional, semi-professional in the sense I was, I was getting paid money, especially when I moved to sevens rugby, I was getting paid to play and train. But at the same time, I still kept a job. And I look back now and people say to me, do you wish you was professional all your career? And I actually think I'm quite pleased that I wasn't professional because, one, I was able to develop my skills and get an education and I've got, you know, professional qualifications that enable me to work outside of rugby. And at the same time, I was I had a good balance to my life. So when rugby wasn't going too well, I, I invested in <laughs> things outside of my, my rugby world, which was work. So... And also in my in my past jobs, I was able to develop the talent coming through, and that's so rewarding. Being able to work with, in particular, young people coming through who have aspirations to be successful, and that you get to be part of their journey. So, I like to think that I had a really good balance. But I'm I am also really pleased that women's rugby, women's sport, most women's sport is now professional, and and athletes are being paid to do do a job which, you know, like the men get to do. So, I'm pleased that there's been progress. Yeah. I mean, I think that would surprise a lot of people. The fact that a lot of women back then had other jobs, you know, whether it would be, be, you know, nursing, delivery drivers, you know, teachers or whatever it is, they had another job and then had to go to training in the evening and obviously play games at the weekends. I mean, that that was the same for the men's game, wasn't it? I think during the eighties and it only became professional, I think in the early, early nineties or so. So yeah, that is uh, obviously a whole, whole different world, but Obviously, things came to a head with you and your England career, winning multiple Six Nation uh, championships and then becoming a World Cup winner in 2014. Now, I know because I've done the research that this wasn't an easy path and you had a couple of close misses in the two previous World Cup finals. Could you tell us a little bit about that journey and how you found the the will to, you know, give it another go, give it that third try? What what kind of motivated you to, to go back and try again? Yeah. So I guess I went to my, I went to my first World Cup back in 2006 out in Canada and got to the final. I thought we were going to win it and we lost. Um, so we, we played New Zealand in the final and New Zealand, men or women, it doesn't really matter what gender you're talking about. They are absolutely brilliant. Well, the men are struggling a little bit right now, but apart from that, they're generally really quite brilliant. And, it was a final. I thought, oh god, I, you know, I've, I've tasted the experience of being in a final, and I want to be in a final again. So we was really committed to another four years. And World Cups are like Olympic cycles. Every four years, you just gotta, you just gotta work hard, incredibly hard during that four year cycle period to get back to, but get back into that England team and progress to a World Cup, and then hopefully get to a final and then hopefully get the right results. So. I, you know, committed for another four years, went to another Rugby World Cup. That was 2010, and it was in, in England. And this, and by this point, women's rugby was starting to be made aware of. So that World Cup was um, on the telly. So it was, it was being shown on the telly. We had lots of people come to watch the games. And, and as the tournament progressed and more attention became on us in terms of papers and radio and TV, we started to get more fans come to watch the games. And then we got to the final again, which was great. But this time it was, well, not this time, the same time it was against New Zealand, which wasn't necessarily an ideal outcome. So we lost that final, but we lost by three points. So the score was 10-13. Devastated as a team and as a nation because we'd got to the final again and we just missed out. Especially when you're in your home country, you want to be able to do it in front of your home fans. But actually, after that World Cup, women's rugby started to take go on the up. And then, you know, again, you you as an individual have to say, am I going to commit for another four years? And it's sort of four years is a very long time in anyone's life, really. But I committed, many of my teammates committed. Four years passed by, we get to another World Cup out in France. And in the final, this time we didn't play New Zealand, we played Canada because uh, New Zealand got knocked out in the World Cup to Ireland, which was which was amazing. And I'm still grateful to them for that. <laughs> um, but we we got to the final and we won against Canada, which was which wasn't an easy final, but we got we we you know we got the result that we wanted, thankfully. And it's just just pure uh, for me it was relief because we several cycles before we got to that point. And if you think about it in total, it took twelve years. It took twelve imagine committing to one goal for twelve years and then um, there's no guarantee that it was going to get the result that you wanted. But thankfully we won that final and at that point that's when I was like, right, I've got to retire. And I was 30 at that time, which is quite a young age to retire from rugby. Some people go on a bit longer, but I was like, right, 
it wasn't about my age. It was about the goal. And it was 12 years it took to reach this goal. And now I'm happy to step away, um, especially as there were so many other young, talented athletes coming through. And I was really, I want them to have the same experiences and journey that I've, I have. And, I've, and I don't want to be greedy. I've done what I needed to do. Now step away. But um, it was an, an amazing experience. But I think it was more amazing because the journey beforehand was so challenging. Maybe if we'd achieved it the first time around, might not have appreciated it as much. But because I had it, because me and my teammates had experienced failure and failure, the success was was beautiful. It was, it was the most specialist thing ever because we had worked so hard to get to that point. Yeah, I mean, you see, you see it time and time again. You know, you know, even moving into football, you know, Manchester City, they've got so close over recent years in the Champions League, and then last season they they finally win it. And as you say, it almost tastes a bit more sweeter the fact that they've had so many near misses um it does break me it does break me that you're talking about man city i'm an arsenal fan so uh, i just like oh i can't even appreciate their their successes you know um, one day we'll do it one day one day <laughs> but i was actually thinking about this uh, a bit earlier you must be one of the very few world cup winners in this country that are still young alongside the england uh, men's rugby cup winners back in the uh, in in the 90s again changing sports if if you had to give some advice to the Lionesses and to the England men's football team about how to win a World Cup. What would you tell them? What would you suggest? What, like, maybe two or three pointers would you give them to say, look, this is, this is actually how you win a World Cup? So I think there's a few things that I would say. I do feel success is, um, I feel failure breeds success. So in particular with the Lionesses, I think, you know, they're losing in that final to Spain. I mean, what... Both teams were brilliant. They made history being there and, and Spain to achieve what they did, despite all the, the negativity that happened after that. Um, what a what a, an amazing achievement. So I would say first, you know, almost embrace the failure and the lessons learned from that. And that will, there would have been a massive debrief after that World Cup final and, and there'll be lots of conversations and strategies being put in place now to learn how to create success. So you know, when you have failure, I guarantee you. I've seen the best the best athletes, the best teams have achieved such amazing success, but no one talks about the epic failures beforehand because actually it's the epic failures, which is what breeds that success. So I would say learn from your, learn from your, I don't want to call it failure because yes, they didn't win, but it's a lesson. Learn from that lesson that you've, that you've had. And there's, everyone's got very different lessons. And that's the same with the men as well, obviously, in their journey to winning, to trying to get to win a World Cup. I would also say, you know, one of the big big reasons why I feel that we won our World Cup back in 2014 is because we had emotional we had an emotional bond, an emotional connection that I truly believe no one could break. We like we understood each other, and by that I mean we understood each other's journeys, what we all wanted to achieve from winning the World Cup, you know, why we were there. Like once you start to, and I say this in, in not just in sport but in business as well, when you start to understand the people around you, their journeys, their stories, their upbringings, their challenges, their, their adversities, you all of a sudden start to go, I want to do it for them. And that's when I think our team sort of moved into a different different realm because we became so close that when something went wrong in, on, during the game, during that moment, you know, your teammate would, would back you up or would fill in your gaps or your blind spots. And we were a very solid team. So, it, and also you learn to put your ego at the door because it's not about you, it's about your teammates and your, and your team comes first. So I would say, and I don't know how to put this in an in a, in a actual lesson or an actual point, but it would be very much understanding everyone's drivers and building that emotional bond. Because once you build an emotional bond, you get trust. And that's how I, I truly believe the best teams are the ones that they're almost like family. And it's, it may sound, may sound cheesy, but it you know when you've got that level of bond between each other you find a way of we find a way of winning yeah I mean that lends so nicely into what I wanted to ask you next about you know retirement because uh, again I know just by listening to interviews and reading stories of other sports people that have retired particularly from team sports they can be really quite traumatic you know if you've had that bond that family and then you know you don't have it anymore it can be quite traumatic. So how how was retirement for you? Oh, to be honest, it's crazy to think that I retired like nine years ago, but um, I feel like it was only yesterday. So the challenge of retirement, and, and this is for anyone in any walk of life, that you go from being an expert in one field and then all of a sudden when you come out, you feel like you're starting again and you're slightly maybe a novice. 
So my initial challenge was trying to find what am I good at again and also trying to understand what is my identity because my identity for a very long time, like most athletes go through, and also people like servicemen and women go through, it's like I've always been an athlete. I am an athlete. That's what I know myself to be. And then when you come out of being the athlete, you sort of go, well, what am I? Am I a... <laughs> you know, you're just, you're just trying to find your identity again. And also you, you're in a, an industry, I guess, where you get, you get praise like that. If you, get, you, know, you do something great, someone praises you. If you do something not great, yeah, you get the feedback, but it's a weird world which not everyone can relate to. And also people are watching you. From, sometimes millions of people are watching you. And it's just there's something about it that's really exciting because every day feels like it's different or every weekend feels like it's different. So to go from that to then go to the real <laughs> the real world um, was, was a challenge. But at the same time, I, I found myself going, right, what? Again, it was a nice challenge. What are you good at? Right, put yourself out there. Step out of your comfort zone. You know, put yourself in scenarios where you've really got to learn, adapt and, and build. So for me, you know, even though I was working still, I still had to try and find what was going to work for me and what was going to be my next chapter. So I, like most people, job interviews, some I was successful in, some I failed in. Oh, that was hard, like to go, you've either experienced success all your career, rugby career, and then you go to a certain job interview and they're like, no, you're not good enough. And like, that was like, well, you know what, I, I should, I've won a World Cup. I should be, I should be getting every job I, I put myself towards. And that was the, re- the reality was it wasn't the case. What kind of jobs were these? Are these like corporate jobs or? Yeah, corporate jobs. Oh, right, yeah, okay. Corporate jobs, right. wealth investment, um, what other ones I went through. Yeah, there's a range of jobs like that, which to be honest, weren't jobs for me, but I retire and you know that you need to get a job that's going to give you a certain salary that will enable you to do the things you want to do. But I'm glad I put myself out there because I put myself out there in a way that I had to. I had no choice really. And then um, I landed in what I felt was just by chance really. So, fell into I did a bit of TV work but then the opportunities took off more and became and then started to work in as a pundit rugby pundit made sure I went away and did my training and preparing myself and building my skill my level and my my ability which I still do to this day like you don't you don't just become a good whatever pundit I go away and and make sure I have the right coaches around me to keep developing and working on my skill but yeah I ended up becoming a, a pundit as a rugby pundit on the telly and thoroughly thoroughly enjoy it it's not the only thing I do I still have one foot in the corporate world so I do actually work for a health insurance company called Vitality where um you know I still have one I have my life is very divided in the sense that I, have, I work on the telly with punditry I, I work for also Vitality health insurance company but then I also deliver leadership talks and you know working and helping supporting various leaders in different industries about how to be the best that they can be. So I like to think that I've got a, a portfolio career, which gives me variety. But, I, but, but since retiring, I've now found my identity. I know who I am and, and I'm really comfortable with that. As a, as a result of almost experiencing different you know, challenges, I've put myself out there, but now I've, I've, I've sort of found who I am and, and I'm really happy with that. Oh, that's so pleasing to hear that you found who you are. That's that's really good to hear. Now, again, maybe what a lot of people don't know about you is that you tried out to go to the Rio Olympics in shot put. I know you touch on this in your in your book. So, you know, it's another people that want to find out more. Please go and read the, the book. But how frustrating or how challenging was that period for you when you were doing the training for shot put and it didn't quite work out for you? It was very frustrating. Let's be honest. I I, I put myself out there. I, I said, you know, I'm going to try and get myself to Olympic Games, which was Rio. Uh, I announced that just sort of soon after I had retired back in 2014. So I gave myself a two-year window to get myself there. And I used to be a shot thrower before I actually came into rugby. So that was the reason why I went down that route. Because, I, I, you know, I thought I was fit. I had the power. I had strength. And the reality was I just didn't make it. And there were so many athletes who are bigger and stronger than me. But I'm so pleased I put myself out there to, to try and get there. Frustrated I didn't make it. Also, I guess another challenge was it's a very different sport. You go from team sport, which is rugby, where you've got lots of people around you, the every day is very different, different personalities. There's always a level of energy in the room. Then you go to shot put where you're on your own, really. You generally have maybe one, maybe two, if you're lucky, coaches. And it's a different sport with a different pathway to get to play for England or Great Britain. 
all represent Great Britain. So that that was really hard for me to navigate. But I tried. I tried my very best. Didn't make it. But I'm so I'm so pleased I put myself out there. I, you know, lots of sports, lots of athletes do that. They, they, sometimes they're successful. Sometimes they're not. But at least you've at least you've done it and you've experienced it. Because it, it did lead to other doors opening up. And this is what I always say to people. It's important to step out of that comfort zone and challenge yourself because it really does lead to other doors opening up. If you don't get what you want in the first instance, I tell you now, it'll lead to something else coming your way. And it did for me. And really luckily, um, that's when I became a pundit because I still had the profile and the opportunity to utilise my, my knowledge as a rugby player and put it into, uh, into TV work. Yeah. And for, for anybody out there that's a rugby fan or even just a sports fan, obviously Maggie is um, part of ITV's coverage of the uh, Men's Rugby World Cup at the moment. So that's really interesting. And obviously we're, we're still we're still in the pool stages, aren't we? We are. We yeah. are. We're still, still lots of rugby to go. But um, so far, so good. It's been good. Yeah, fantastic. Now, um, obviously, life has kind of taken another turn for you over over recent years. You've become a mother along with your along with your partner how have you found the transition to becoming a mother wow it's been um i thought playing rugby was hard <laughs> um, <laughs> it's uh, it's been brilliant look I, i'm very lucky have two beautiful kids the journey to becoming a parent wasn't really easy so but thankfully we've got two healthy great kids who've just done incredible are doing incredibly well um the hardest bit i found was I'm in now, really, wanting to be a good role model, wanting to be a good parent, wanting to set up their future so they have an easier path than what maybe I had or my other half had. And also making sure that we are being role models for them that they can emulate. Um, They're still really young. One's almost three and one is only eight months years old. So there's still a bit of time for them. But um, I guess the things that you do now is that you just want to be able to give time to them. And people say to me all the time is if you can, spend more time with them because the days these days will never get back so and, and it's hard as a parent for anyone who's a parent listening to this is you always feel like you've got parent guilt or work guilt where you feel like oh, I'm working but I wish I would love to spend more time with my kids but you know for us all it's always trying to find that balance where you go I'm hopefully working to give and invest in my child my my children's future let's say every day is a, is, is a school day I'm always learning Never perfect, always making mistakes, but also, you know, what I love right now is my kids are happy and they smile and we're giving them hopefully the best upbringing they possibly can have and ensuring that they are going on their their journey. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. It's a completely different, completely different challenge. Now, I, I'm not sure if you've actually touched on this on another interview or on another podcast, but, um, and you don't, you know, you don't have to answer this at all, but your partner's called Marcella. And I was just wondering... Was there a coming out period for you earlier on? And and if so, how challenging was that for you? Yeah, so I, I'm in a same-sex relationship, married to a woman, um, and I knew from early on that I was gay. Um, so it's really interesting. So I very much came from an upbringing where Christian family very much went to church regularly, Nigerian background as well. So my mother didn't necessarily sort of understand my sexuality and the path that I was going down, really. And um, it's really interesting. It's just funny, the, the term coming out is something I tend to avoid, actually, because I didn't necessarily come out. I just, I had always been, this is, you know, I was born this way and this is how I had been. And and, and actually, the, the only challenge was is just trying to, when do I let my mum know, <laughs> you know, this is who I am. And, and so I told her in my... Um, after I think I was still at university at the time, so I had told I told her basically once I had come out of university and was obviously progressing my professional career, and um, it was a challenge. I can't lie to you; it was a challenge, and and I I completely understand from my mum's perspective that was really hard because she didn't. I think she was more upset with the fact that I hadn't told her sooner. That was more the the, the challenge, not necessarily the fact that I was this way. And what I'm, what you know, we went through a challenging time. We had some ups and some downs. But what's great now, she knows this is who I am. She loves who I am, and she loves my wife. You know, that, and that's brilliant. Like, and we have two beautiful kids, and and that's that's the kind of priority, and that's the main thing. So I think that's the hardest thing for many people who go on that journey. It's actually people are always worrying about will the people around me accept me, and thankfully they did and they do and if they don't then they don't become part of my life anymore you know the reality is it's and I, I guess that's that was the thing back then it's very much um 
I can't change who I am. I am who I am and how I've been born. So but that this is why I'm very much a I guess I'm a champion for diversity and inclusion. You know, we're we're all different types of people, different backgrounds, different race, different sexualities, disabilities and faith. And actually, how do we ensure that people can bring their best selves to to work or the environment that they're in? And thankfully for me, I've been I can I feel like I can live the life that I, I want to live. Where some people in certain parts of the world can't, so I guess I'm I guess I'm very grateful. I'm always grateful, and as long as my kids are also able to see that people can be different types of people, and and it's okay, you know, that's that's always a big thing for me. Yeah, great to hear, great to hear. Now, again, people might not know unless they read the book that you are part of the RFU Council, so that must keep you quite busy as well. But I know in terms of your goals, um, again, listening to one of your earlier podcasts. You mentioned that you wanted to become a president or CEO of a sporting organization. And I just love the fact that you just kind of put it out there so the whole world kind of knows. And I just thought that was so sort of refreshing in, in, in many ways. Is that still one of your goals? And, and if so, how, how's that? how are you getting on with that? It is, yeah. So um, basically, I put out the goal that I want to be president of the Rugby Football Union. And the, the challenge is, if, I'm, if I make it brilliant, I've broken down barriers, I've become the first person of colour to take on that role. There's going to be a woman who's going to take on that role in 2025 already now. But uh, that I set that goal. That was my goal. And I wanted to try and achieve that. Unfortunately, I put myself, I've, I have recently gone through an interview to try and get the role and didn't get it. And at the time, I remember thinking to myself, I had failed. But now I look at it now and go, actually, failure would have been not going for the role. Putting myself out there is, is a key thing, because if I don't achieve it, if I don't get this goal, then of course I'd be gutted. But at the same time, what I would have hopefully done is created a pathway for someone else to, to take that role or now raise the attention then the interest level for this role, that this role is out there. Because most people don't even know that a president role exists for the Rugby Football Union or for many sports. Like every sport has, a, most sports, especially in England, have a president for the sport or a CEO for the for the governing body. So it's, it's trying to show people you can do it, you can get there. And if I, if I don't get there, I'll guarantee you now somebody else will do it. So that's my goal, really. And I still keep pushing. I'm still keep pushing the doors. <laughs> um, and I've, yeah, if I don't make it, I don't make it. But if I do, wow, I've done it. But my goal will be to hopefully ensure that someone else either gets there or exceeds what I've achieved. Yeah, watch, watch this space. Watch this space. Who knows? Watch this space indeed. Well, I, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure you, will, you will get there. So as you say, watch this space. Now, I know we've got uh, only a couple of minutes left. One question that we do ask all guests on the show is to kind of reflect on your career and sort of assess, you know, how much of your success is either down to luck, how much of it is down to hard work, or how much of it is down to talent. If you had to choose one of the three that's got you to where you are now, what has been the biggest contributor towards your your success, do you think? Oh, really good question. I would actually add a fourth point to that is the help of others. So I would say for me... I've been really fortunate and lucky and whatever you may add to it, the right people have been, I've been surrounded by the right people who have given me the right support, the encouragement, you know, the connections to, to find my path. So I guess what I, what I'm saying is I'd say the first part from the, my journey would be talent. So my rugby talent has given me this, the opportunity to be selected. Then it's just been hard work to retain and, and stay in the game as a rugby player, but also as a, as a pundit. And then a bit of, a bit of, uh, thankfully, a rub of the green, a bit of luck that's gone my way that has just, you know, stars have aligned and I've found the, the opportunity to get onto TV and, and other elements. But then hard work comes back into it because you get there, your foot's in the door, but you still need to keep working and grafting to keep yourself there. And then, yeah, I'd say the running theme or the thread throughout has been just the right people around me, the right resources, the right support that have kept me there. So again, I haven't necessarily answered your question at one point, but I, I think it's a it's a mixture of all all three uh, or four um, elements that have kind of kept me going and 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 have been the reason why I am or where I am today. No, I like it. Slipping in a, a fourth one there, very <laughs> creative. And then obviously the the book. We started with the book and we end with the book. Uh, the book is is called Winning the Fight, and I, I did have a quick look on Amazon. 
It's been given a 4.6 rating out of five. So yeah, very good. Very That's good. good. I think only yeah. one person's reviewed it. But if, 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 if people buy it, please go review it. I mean, people keep telling me now, you need to make sure people review it because people love stars. So I'll, I'll, that's uh, I'm going to try and get more people to put a review on it. That's, that's yeah. the aim. And how, how are you finding the book talk? Because I know you have to do like some promo, don't you, to kind of promote the book. How, how are you finding that? That's correct. Yes. Yeah, so I did a lot of promo before it was launched officially on August the 31st. And there's been consistently doing more as it's out there now. And especially whilst the Men's Rugby World Cup is, is on, you know, I've got good visibility and people are wanting to talk about rugby. So I'm loving it. I love it. And, and, and it's interesting. I've always talked about my story, but, you know, this book is all about really being vulnerable but also sharing a story that we all can hopefully resonate with like I talk about my fight but every one of us has a fight (laughs) you know something that we're trying to achieve that we're trying to get to work towards and I like to think there's elements of the book that may resonate with people but you can take something away from it either from the world of sport from the world of business world of being leader we all have something that we can hopefully take from that book so um yeah it's been great i've thoroughly enjoyed it and and um i just want more more people to put good stars and good reviews <laughs> on online but um i overall it's been it's been really positive excellent excellent so people if you want to go out and buy that book it's available on amazon and all good bookshops uh please do go and and buy that maggie you've been a wonderful guest thank you so much and all the best with the remaining world cup uh, coverage on itv thank you so much Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, it's not every day you get a World Cup winning player on your podcast. So many, many thanks to Maggie there for giving up her time. We covered a lot of subjects in a short amount of time. So we tried to pack in as much as we could. But she did have to let the babysitter go. I really do hope that she she does make it into a leadership position in a sporting organisation as there are still very, very few of us in in that space. And I think in particular, she would make a a great leader and push her sport forward. So look out for that. As we also mentioned, Maggie's biography is out now. It's called Winning the Fight. And I will include a link to it in the show notes. Let me know what you thought of the interview. Hit us up on the socials or send us an email to howicrushedit at gmail.com and catch you on the next show. The, the, the rugby union, uh, yeah, the rugby union uh, union uh, council. You're getting uh, it. It's good. Rugby football union. Yeah, it always says the F. <laughs> <laughs>